This week, I've got Rob Sylvan here, who uh, he's not only an old friend, we've worked together on many projects and for a long time, but he has a new book. And I'm like, that's a great excuse to invite a friend onto a podcast. Tyler, great to hear from you. I'm happy to be here. Um, what's your new book about? Uh, the new book is Lightroom Classic for Dummies. And um, it's an update actually to the first book I ever wrote, which was Lightroom 2 for Dummies, way back in 2007 that I wrote it, 2008 it came out. You definitely needed an update. It definitely, yeah. This uh, a few things have happened in the Lightroom world in the last ten years. That's for sure. And uh, how did it end up being? I mean, I'm glad you wrote about classic because I'm still on classic. But um, like, that's still your world is working on the desktop uh, local storage version of Lightroom. Yeah. Well, I think that for anyone who really thinks of themselves as a photographer, at least as a even as a working photographer. It's really hard to just use the cloud-based one and not use classic simply because uh, the the export output options from the cloud-based one are are really limited. So as as any photographer trying to deliver files, unless all you need is JPEGs that you don't have much control over, that's kind of your only choice right now. That's even like part of, well, I didn't want to dive into it too fast, but that's part of what I wanted to ask you about. Because <laughs> like I never quite got a grasp on how I can make the cloud side of, of Lightroom and more advanced cloud photo editing stuff more useful to me. Because right now I feel like I'm using it in, you know, I don't know, like the laziest, easiest way. But here, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll slow us down a bit so that we can uh, get into that in a second and just like... yeah. Update the listener on how we know each other too, because there's uh, I don't know we've we've done interesting, exciting things in the past too. Yeah, we, um, yeah. I mean, for a long time. Yeah, totally. So I, we've known each other for maybe I'm sure ten years, maybe a little more. About that'd be more than that. I and mean, I started on iStock in 2002. Wow, that's wild. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I mean, so you definitely have me beat there, and I was probably there around 2004, I think. And so that's uh, that's how we knew each other. You you were doing like what what was your iStock world? Because you also wrote a stock photography book. I did. Yeah, that was uh, that was back in 2010. Well, back then, so I had uh, my son. This is how I know it because he was born in 2001, and that's when I got my first digital camera. And at the time, I was working for a small company locally here that did a lot of uh, web based training. And at the time, at that at that early two thousands, that was that was new. The web was this new thing, and doing these trainings was a lot of converting from the old big thing, which was CD ROM based training. And so we used a lot of clip art, a lot of stock imagery, and that kind of set me down searching for stock content. And that's when I found iStock and started contributing. And you know, away away we went. Decades later now. Yeah, and it's been a very a long journey and things have changed a lot since then. Oh my God. Yeah. Uh, and then our, our part of it is then throughout that. So we kind of did stuff together uh, at iStock. I mean, maybe even a little less. I think we worked together the most later when we did uh, Stocks United together. That's right. Yeah. And um, that was a, you know, that's kind of a much more mature version of what stock photography is. The, the iStock world, like gold, golden age iStock was a pretty short lived mm-hmm. thing in, in the end yeah. of yeah. where a pretty big group of relatively new photographers can start doing this for work out of nowhere. That was a moment and and turned out not to be uh, the the average. And so where Stocks ended up more was that we were working with a bunch of, uh, you know, more experienced photographers. It wasn't at all about how senior people were, but like, 
people that were already capable of taking great photos as opposed to training them up. And we uh, licensed their work and try to help them make a sustainable living from it and have a real job by selling their photography and, and hopefully selling the kind of photography they want to take instead right. of having them shoot traditional, cheesy, lame stock. Yeah. And I, I feel like that's kind of taken over since then, too. I feel like that's sure. I mean, I you know who knows where where credit lies, but uh, starting uh, at least around the time that Stocksy started, um, there became a lot more good stock photography that looked contemporary and didn't look so cheesy. Right, and I think the other part of Stocksy that you know feels so much different than than iStock days is is the the fact that it's a co op, the fact that we feel like we the company has got our backs, and you know the royalty distribution is a lot more fair. I mean, all those things that having a say in how things go, you know, it's really, it's so different and, and that feels really good. We're probably not quite qualified now being sort of out of the stock game a bit, but True. when people ask me if it's a viable way to make money in 2019, I mean, is it, what, what would, how do you answer that? Well, I think, I think as anyone who's doing photography in some other way, I think it's, I think it provides a, an opportunity for an income stream that, I don't know any photographer who who couldn't benefit from additional income stream. I know for me, I've been self-employed for almost 15 years now. And I, all I think about is how many different income streams do I have from writing, <laughs> yeah. teaching, you know, stock, all those different things. And so I never was the full-time stock photographer. I never thought that was where I wanted to put my energy, but I've always, you know, kept a toe in it. And so if you're looking for a way to do photography that you're totally in control of the creative process and the, and the final output and you're shooting content you love and you're improving your skills and all those things, and at the same time, you might produce some content that could get licensed, I, I think that's a really interesting thing to consider as a way to generate revenue from your own personal projects. If you're someone who's full on, like we, we, there's some amazingly talented and smart business people on Stocksy who know how to invest their resources into a stock shoot that actually generates a significant income. That's a harder person to be, <laughs> I mm -hmm. think, um, and and more power to them uh, for doing it. But for for most folks. You know, I, I still think there's an opportunity as long as you go in eyes wide open and, and feel like, you know, you know, the whole the whole ropes of licensing and how your images might get used. And, you know, there's there's a whole lot of education you can get that I feel like I got out, out of that. And, and at the same time, you also get this uh, other layer of feedback on your work that you might not get if all you're doing is sharing on social and, you know, to, to doing kind of one-off jobs and it's and that's nothing wrong with that but it's just another way of you're putting kind of putting your work out there and it kind of speaks for itself in that in that kind of limited stock world you know how it's it's there to be used by someone else not necessarily to be appreciated for its artistry and and, and beauty but yeah i find it also helpful that you can get this much harsher critique of your work in stock photography yeah. both when you upload it to the site sometimes it'll get turned away and then right. in terms of if anybody ever actually pays money for it it's a lot easier it's cheaper for people to give a like than to throw down some hard-earned cash to license your image so yeah. you know and it's still great and you see it get used mm -hmm. uh in, in a way as long as you you know you feel good about you know that whole process so once a year the last few years 
one of the things I still do in the stock world is I, I teach a, a very short kind of stock intro to stock photography class at the Rocky Mountain School of Photography in Missoula, Montana. It's an awesome photography school. What a, it's just a it's a family run, really high highly caliber you know instructors. Somehow I got in there, but um, they do an awesome job. But I, they bring me in and I. I got that because of that book I wrote on stock photography back in 2010. They keep having me come back. But, um, I, you know, that that's the kind of perspective I try to share with the students in that, in that short class is, you know, this is something to be aware of. You might find it useful. The great thing about stock is that you can kind of jump in with both feet and go all in, or you can kind of just dabble. And there's really, you know, there's a lot of room in between for how you might approach it and then put it on the back burner for a while. And then you come back and say, Hey, maybe, maybe I'll, I'll give this another go. Meanwhile, the content you have out there generating revenue, yeah. you know, at least potentially. So. Well, there's two ways I think can still be really useful for people to look at stock photography. And, and first is as a learning tool. Uh, it yeah. was a major part of how I became better at photography is going through that process of, submitting things and having them rejected and, you know, seeing, seeing what worked and seeing what didn't and having a reason to shoot a lot of the time. Yeah. And even it would give yourself a bit of a creative direction. It's, you know, it's great. Cause you have this overall direction of like, I know that these kinds of things will sell, but in the end you're still able to make the final decisions and feel like you have some control over what's going to be created. And I really like that balance of it. So if you're early in your career, it's a great, way to learn, you will probably at this point, this is a 2019 thing, uh, struggle a little bit, I think, to make significant revenue from it right. at, at that early stage, especially, yeah. you know, so you're going to be looking at places like iStock Photo or Shutterstock or, or there's others. Adobe Stock. Adobe <laughs> Stock, yeah. And, yeah. Um, and I should also mention that uh, Unsplash exists, which... I don't know how I feel about having having uh, you know kind of made a living selling stock. Yeah. I, I I like I like them as a service. You know, I uh, I use them occasionally for I've used them for some of the podcast art on the show when I'm just like right. the, it, this isn't going to be seen by many people. Um, it's kind of on the inside page of the actual website. Uh, there is it's hard for me to justify a budget for it, but right. you know I just want I just want a relevant photo of something of a flower. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I'm glad Unsplash exists. I get it. It comes from the same origin as iStock Photo. Yeah. Because uh, that's how iStock Photo started, was just kind of a photo exchange. But for people contributing to it, I would just say don't spend too much time on it. Right. It's a fun, it, it, I get that it's a fun thing to do. And you should, if you are interested, it could be a good place to dabble. But be aware that when you're giving away your photography on Unsplash, it, um, it is something that has value and you could be generated right. from it somewhere yeah. else. So, Absolutely. Yeah. And then the other valuable thing still with stock, if you have already learned how to take photos, it can, it can definitely be a real supplementary income if you are already a professional. So that's what it is for us. Uh, we haven't updated our images for at least a year or two, so everything's kind of <laughs> getting stale there. But we yeah. d- we do get a check every month, and it's not nothing. You know, it's it it counts. And um, if you if you already have a career, or if you already know how to take photos that people will buy, if that is taken care of, you definitely can just go out and 
do some focus shoots. They have to be intentionally for stock a lot of the time. Like you have to decide, like I am going to try to make something that people are going to want to license and then everybody needs to sign model releases and everything needs to be logo free and in a location that has agreed to have the image taken and all that stuff. But if you put that bit of work into it, that can start generating long-term trickle revenue that can be pretty great. Yeah. And then, yeah, I mean, and you get to meet some cool people. Oh, for sure. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. For us, I mean, it was a huge community building thing too. Um, I I also had realized a little while ago, uh, do you know Peter McKinnon? I don't think I know him personally, but I do know the name. Yeah. And he's, he is from the iStock days, which is, is funny because I mean, everybody listening to this will know that he is the uh, YouTube superstar of, of our era. Uh, he's completely blown up in the last few years, but he was uh, doing it as uh, like kind of a living at the same time that I was. I just didn't wasn't aware of him then. But uh, when I ran into him for the first time, that was the first thing we realized we had in common. It's like, oh, we were doing iStock at the same time. That's cool uh, as work. So yeah, and back then everyone had kind of necessarily uh, revealing usernames, so you could have people <laughs> who were, you know some bizarre name and then you find out their actual real name. I was like, Oh, oh yeah. There's I, people I, that I, I never learned their real name. Yeah. No, I, I, I met someone like that. He was Uniball at the time. <laughs> and, uh, turns so, out that anyway, wasn't yeah. his uh, first name. No. <laughs> yeah, no, but a lot of, you know, I, I, I feel there's always going to be kind of a, a soft spot in my heart for stock photography because of how much I've learned through that world and through all the people and the connections, I, I would not, I would not have written that book if it had been for my connection to the stock world. I mean, yeah. there's so many things I could look back and, and I would, I would be in a totally different path if I hadn't gone down that road. And I, I wouldn't be taking photos at all. I mean, uh, definitely got me to where I was. So yeah, it's still cool. I would investigate it if you never have, but let's talk about Lightroom a bit. What is, uh, what's the state of Lightroom? So the, the, the first big question I kind of want to jump to is how do you decide if cloud or classic are for you? Yeah, it's, it's really, uh, it's been a challenging time to talk about Lightroom these last couple of years because um, first we had the, the Lightroom classic where we had, you know, for better part of 10 years, just a product that we called Lightroom, even though its full name was Adobe Photoshop Lightroom. People just called it Lightroom. Then in 2017, Adobe said, hey, so remember that little mobile app we had on your phone? We decided we're going to make a Windows and Mac version of that app, and we're going to call that Lightroom CC. And then that version of Lightroom that you've been using all these years, we're going to call that Lightroom Classic. And that, you know, caused a whole kind of controversy and people being afraid that at the end of of Lightroom Classic. Um. And so what really what they realized was there's this whole mobile world of photography that these things that we still call phones, which is not probably the best name for them anymore, have opened up uh, for people who maybe wouldn't have called themselves a photographer, but they do take a lot of photographs and videos. Mm. Um, And so they wanted uh, to really kind of claim some uh, territory in that space. And so they took that. Lightroom mobile app, as it was called, and, and made a whole Lightroom ecosystem uh, around having all of the photos that you bring into this ecosystem stored in the cloud, in Adobe Serverland, and then having an app for every one of your devices, Mac, Windows, iOS, Android, even Chrome OS, uh, 
you can get a Lightroom app and all of those apps point to that same central repository of photos and videos and let you access the full resolution photo from whatever device you're on. And it still sounds like the future to me. I mean, we've had it for a while. It is. <laughs> but it's, it's crazy that that works. Yeah. And, it, and it, in some ways, it really is the future. They're really playing a long game on that, I think. And, and, they, and they should be. And, and so there's a lot of really cool things about that ecosystem. And if you're the type of person who maybe spends most of their time on a mobile device, occasionally sits in front of a laptop, maybe has a desktop, you know, as an alternative. And maybe you have less than a terabyte of total images uh, or content. Then for $9.99 a month, you get the Lightroom ecosystem and a terabyte of cloud storage. And you can do a lot with that if that kind of can meet your needs. And that's where I start to see people deciding which route they want to go. So if you have any need for Photoshop, and I still use Photoshop all the time. Or if you want to take advantage of slideshows, the, the making books that you can do in Lightroom Classic, lots of metadata entry, like for stock photography, doing keywords and captions and titles. Um, if you want to be able to work with third-party plugins, if you want to take advantage of a product that's been maturing for you know uh, 12 years or so, then Lightroom Classic can do all everything that Lightroom what used to be called Lightroom CC could do, could do, but it does it all locally on your system. And so for folks like you, I would guess you probably have more than a terabyte of total data. Is that a safe assumption to make? Uh, yeah, uh, much, much more. <laughs> it would cost an additional $9.99 per month for each terabyte more you want to add on top of that first terabyte. So it can get very expensive uh, for someone like you or me even if, say, you want to do three terabytes, you know, so 30 bucks additional per month just for that storage, that's kind of steep for most photographer people that I know. So uh, you can use, and this is where it gets even more confusing, but, and this is where my book comes in. So you can use Lightroom Classic and the Lightroom ecosystem together um, for that creative cloud photography plan price of $9.99 a month that includes Lightroom Classic and Photoshop and only 20 gigabytes of cloud storage. But here's the, here's the secret that makes it work that doesn't really get advertised very much is that if you start in Lightroom Classic and you create a collection and you sync that catalog with the Lightroom Cloud, you can mark collections you know, to, go, to sync across. And from Lightroom Classic, it can only upload what's called a smart preview. And a smart preview is kind of like a glorified JPEG. So if it started with as a raw photo, it still has the rawness in terms of editing capability, like changing the profile or changing the white balance. But it uses a, a lossy compression to reduce the file size. And it also reduces the pixel dimensions to, uh, it's like 20, 2048 pixels, something like that. So it creates a small package that's a very editable package that gets uploaded to the cloud. And here's the secret. Smart previews that are uploaded from Lightroom Classic do not count against your cloud storage. So you could have thousands of images synced from Lightroom Classic to the Lightroom Cloud. Oh. And you'd see them on your mobile device. I see. You could edit them. Right. You could share them on social. You can do whatever you need to do with that smaller, remember that smaller pixel dimension, but still, you know, 2000 pixels on the long side 
just a little bit smaller than my first DSLR. <laughs> so it's not that, yeah. it's not that small. Um, and so you can use the two hand in hand as long as you realize that there are some also some well, limitations. And critically, if the purpose of having the mobile version was, let's say, be able to post to Instagram or Twitter at a moment's yeah. notice, that you kind of have everything at your fingertips for social posting, that right. does fit their, you know, their minimum size requirements. You'd still have a little bit of room to crop if you needed to. Right. And that's where Lightroom Mobile started. It started as a companion app to what is now called Lightroom Classic. And it still does all the things it did then, back when it was called Lightroom CC 2015. <laughs> Just to throw a different name in there. Oh, boy. And so that, that, that's where that, that partnership has kind of been frozen in time between those two apps. There's been no real new additions in terms of what will sync between the two. So, for example, keywords do not sync between the two. Mm-hmm. worlds the two ecosystems so if you keyword in lightroom classic that's not going to appear in the lightroom mobile app if you do keywording in the lightroom ecosystem apps that's not going to appear in lightroom classic so you have to realize there are some hard stops there but there's a lot of a lot of value for someone like you or i who use lightroom classic as your home base but i'm pretty sure you always have a mobile device of some sort within arm's reach um, if you need to be able to, re, you know, access some photos from a shoot, just your portfolio, stuff you want to put on social, stuff while you're just traveling, vacation, whatever it is. I mean, I use my phone all the time for capturing what's around me. And then here's the other cool part. So anything you capture in the Lightroom mobile app automatically downloads full res to your Lightroom classic catalog. And so for me, it's a, a wireless automated transfer functionality from my phone and my iPad right to my home base. It all comes in. Where it gets tricky is you only get that 20 gigabytes of uh, cloud storage. And so if you're shooting with the built-in Lightroom camera module, which is actually a pretty decent camera that will shoot in DNG, uh, the, uh, that, those images you capture in the, in the app will count against your cloud storage. So you need to manage that. And that just so happens, I have a tutorial that I wrote on Lightroom Killer Tips that teaches you all about how to manage that uh, that workflow. So. Perfect. Well, in one thing actually I wanted to throw in there, uh, if you are shooting raw photos on a phone, I found that Lightroom is the place to handle them. Uh, this is just a kind of side tip that there, there can be a lot of weirdness with raw phone photos because, as you all know, I mean, they are doing all sorts of smart HDR and tons of computational photography. And when it shoots a JPEG, it's doing really crazy stuff to the image. It's doing a lot of work for you. So when you take a raw image, it's not the same as a raw image on your DSLR. It needs to go further. It's going to look a lot flatter and have a lot less detail in the highlights than you're used to. It looks terrible, to be honest. Yeah. And a lot of editing apps, if you just import that raw photo, will make it look bad by default. They'll really struggle to get a decent-looking image out of it. Even other mobile apps that I like to edit with, like some of my favorite uh, phone apps that look great with compressed photos with JPEGs, just totally fall apart on a raw mobile image. And I find Lightroom is the best place for it and the only place that I'll actually do do the edit. So my typical workflow for that is that, oh, let's say I'm shooting it in the Lightroom app, which I, I totally agree that it is a great uh, camera, or also use Halide. Uh, that's the one that mm. I have like the, the quick trigger for yep. uh, to launch right away. And um, then I'll load them into Lightroom and use the auto 
what is it? The auto exposure, auto auto setting, contrast, yeah. like auto everything. Yeah. yeah. And I, I'd never use that for like my real photography, but when it comes to the mobile stuff, it does a great job because all of a sudden it's like, oh, I can see that there is all this extra data there and I know just how to get it out and still make it look kind of natural. And yeah. I find it does a, a really great job with, with mobile raw photos. So. This episode is brought to you by Spark Camera. If there's anything you want to get better at, the only way to do it is to practice and do it over and over again. So when it comes to creative pursuits, like, say, making films or filmmaking, as some people call it, I think the best way to, to really improve at uh, the way that you shoot to be a better storyteller in general is just to do it really often. And the way I've started to do that is using Spark Camera to create short little videos on a very regular basis. It's an app for iOS that is a very, very simple way to create short little edits. So what I typically end up doing is making my Instagram stories using this. I just press and hold to start recording, let go to stop, and then you can do quick edits very easily, uh, trimming clips, adjusting volume, adding music, whatever it is you need to do, and it can start to look like a real little short film. I mean, mine are very vlog style, the shot of my phone, but that's okay because the most important thing is getting the message across to the viewer. And when you're able to turn it around in a few minutes, so you shoot it and then it's immediately done, you're able to practice faster. So that's one thing I've really enjoyed about using Spark Camera for the last year and a half or so. If you've ever watched any of my Instagram stories, then you've seen it in use. So go to sparkcamera.com slash Stallman to check it out. And when you do create something with it, you should tag me in it or tag Spark Camera because we would love to see the little videos that you're creating with this super simple tool. So thanks again to Spark Camera for supporting the show, sparkcamera.com slash Stallman. You know, Adobe realizes there's these there's this one world of people who are pretty much either all mobile or want to have things, you know, accessible across all their devices. Then there's all of us who have been coming along all these years with Lightroom now Lightroom Classic, who have terabytes worth of data, who have maybe multiple external editors like from On One or Nick that's now, whoever bought Nick. Google, um, and then something else happened? I don't remember what happened. Yeah, <laughs> it's hard to keep up. Uh, DxO, DxO. Oh, right, right. Um, and so there's a whole world of plugins. There's a whole world of like add-ons for Lightroom Classic. And, and, and I don't see that going anywhere. And then to be honest, because of the cost per terabyte for people who have lots of lots of data, I just don't see them going, you know, to the cloud all in. And yeah. in the Lightroom, the Lightroom cloud app, it's all in. You cannot selectively sync. Everything you bring in goes to the cloud. Yeah, it's just not possible yet. I mean, a lot of the the issue beyond the amount of storage is, is bandwidth as well. Like just being able right. to even if all of a sudden Adobe was able to give us 50 terabytes each, right. how long does it take you to upload 50 terabytes? That's been a, a constant bottleneck for me and a Absolutely. reason that I can't even do proper offsite uh, online backup because I shoot faster than it could upload. Yeah, and so I, I think that people who are worried that they're going to make Lightroom Classic go away, I just don't think that's realistic. Now, Obviously, they don't listen to me because they keep doing all these <laughs> things with the names. That drives me absolutely insane. Yeah. But uh, from a practical standpoint, Lightroom Classic is really good. It really has a lot of um, powerful editing tools and management tools, and there's a really loyal base behind it. And Boy, they would be really foolish to just pull that away when there's nothing that could substitute it in the Adobe world. 
I mean, I would say go back to bridge camera on Photoshop if they pulled it away. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, you know, it's really funny though. I've seen people today that are still using Lightroom as either a lot of them st- still use it as just an editing tool. So they'll yeah. import the photos they're working on right now, uh, right. do some color edits and export them and that's it. And then close Lightroom and then manage them in, like do all the selections in the finder. Uh, yes. <laughs> so there are people that have not uh, figured totally. it out yet. And, you know, yeah. it's, uh, you know, I, I don't blame it, them. I mean, they obviously right. need to listen to Rob Silman a little more. But Well, to be fair, the most intuitive part of Lightroom Classic is the editing. It's what you see is what you get. There's no, there, no one writes into me going, hey, what does the exposure slider do? Right? Mm-hmm. That is, it's very... Uh, it's very obvious uh, to navigate your way through the develop module and make your images look good, hit some presets, whatever you're going to do. That, that, that part, nobody seems to have trouble understanding. The management side of your, of your library, that is where 90% of the questions I deal with come from. For people just like you described, but people who are trying to use Lightroom and just not getting it, or they do things inadvertently, to move files or to delete them by accident or to have a drive that gets renamed or whatever it is, the thing that, that happens. Most of the, the time I spend helping people is with the management side, which is not intuitive whatsoever. Um, and so, you know, to Adobe's credit, the cloud-based version of Lightroom kind of solves that problem because it's all in the cloud. Mm-hmm. There's no folders. There's no things to manage. There's, it's just up there. And, and, the, and the program just takes care of it for you. And if you get a new computer, you just log in with the, download the app, install it, log in, and boom, all your stuff's right there. So you don't have to deal with the whole moving your files around. So uh, they do they do solve that problem. Opens up some other problems, but <laughs> they solve that one. Well, uh, for folks, maybe you could help me solve some of my problems. Uh, <laughs> are there still issues with? Or it, were there ever? I don't know if this was ever a real thing, but uh, the size of a catalog. When should you create a new catalog or have m- more than one? Because my current situation is that for a while I was having one infinitely large catalog, and it would gradually start to get really slow. And yeah. and when I say infinitely large, I mean that's you know uh, tens of thousands of photos a year, so m- multiple hundreds yeah. of thousands in one yeah. catalog. And and that's something I think a lot of people get confused about is scale. That uh, sure. they're like, I shoot a lot of photos, and I, I have three thousand photos in my catalog. Should I start a new one? But like, right, <laughs> the, the actual the hard numbers make a difference. Um, but so then I tried to go for a little while creating a new catalog every year, and mm. I've had a lot of trouble managing them because I will. Right. Open up the 2017 catalog to pull some old photo, and then I start importing a new card, and now I've got things in the wrong place. Um, is there a best practice for this? Well, so there's probably a best practice for for per individual because you know my uh, the benefit I have of of helping folks on the help desk for Lightroom for Kelby One, which I've been doing since Lightroom One came out, is I've got to see there's a whole lot of different workflows out there. And there's not necessarily one right one for everybody. As long as it makes sense to you in your mind and it <laughs> scales into the future, yeah. there's a lot of a lot of room for interpretation. Um, when it comes to is there just some hard number on a Lightroom catalog, there isn't necessarily a number that 
would be the same for you on your system as me for my system. And if you think about Lightroom Classic is really what it is, is a database. The more data you have in that database, the more powerful that database is for you to, as a management tool. At the same time, because there's so much data in there on a, on a given set of hardware specs, that eventually is going to probably become a performance issue, right? Especially for people on maybe older hardware. Now, you're a pretty state-of-the-art guy in general, in my mind anyway. So I, I would doubt that telling you to get new hardware is really going to be the solution. I mean, I'm going to get new um, hardware. Anyway, but <laughs> but the, the flip side is exactly you've encountered both problems, really, both sides of that coin is that eventually you might say, well, I need a new catalog. But then you need another external system to manage your catalogs, right? Because yeah. Lightroom can't search across. You need a catalog for your catalogs. Exactly. And so you can't, um, now a year, going by year, that's kind of the obvious one because, you know, they keep changing and they keep scaling through the future. But the problem is then is us, right? We have to remember what year mm-hmm. <laughs> we did whatever it is that we're trying to find to know what that catalog is. And so you'd have to have some additional external system so that you knew which catalog to go to for that particular thing. Now, I know a guy who's a concert photographer, and he shoots a lot of images, uh, a lot, you know, thousands of images per week, probably. And he found that having an external kind of directory uh, folder structure made it easier for him to use both a combination of date and venue and, you know, band or artist or whatever. So that if he needed to find, you know, the particular shoot from this date for this band, he knew where to find that folder. And then within that folder were the images and the catalog for just that particular event. And so he uses just one catalog per event, but he created this whole external structure for knowing where to find that particular catalog that to me kind of makes me want to curl into a ball (laughs) and cry to try to, you know, that's just not how my brain works. Right. Mm -hmm. So I have one catalog for everything that I shoot, but I'm not that high volume person. Right. So my, my main catalog is just under 200,000 images, which isn't a lot uh, by today's standards at all. Well, and I do know what the ideal situation here is. Like I know what should be done and yep. the real answer is kind of that you should cull your photos and have right. not so many <laughs> that it creates technical issues. The, the right. right way to do this is that at the end of each year, I, I mean, I shouldn't have more than 5,000, right. 10,000 photos left after everything's been right. gone through. That's, that's, right. that's where it should be. Even if you're a professional, unless you're doing something like archival or maybe news-based where you just you need to have access to everything you ever shot, I know that that's not our situation or most right. people's. Most of the time, you're, shooting, you're overshooting to get all the blinking shots out of the way and to, you know, to make sure that the garbage isn't all that you have. So there's tons of, of, of junk that could go away. Um, so in the end, it, the biggest problem ends up being a you know work, working hours obstacle more so than a technical hurdle. And if you put the time in to delete everything, you'd be in the best possible place. That's, that's true. That's what I think it's not, should happen. If you could. It's not sexy, but it's yeah. true. <laughs> yeah, there's there's yeah. basically two ways out of all these problems. It's either you know buy your way out by like spending more money or spend yeah. the time. Um, and and the right. time always gives you the 
more elegant solution. It's just we have yeah. one. And yeah, I think to a lesser degree, shooting less. I know for me, that's definitely a place I'm in currently is trying to not go crazy. It's like, am I really going to do this time lapse that I'm shooting? All these yeah, right. Well, really I go back and look shoot at this, yeah. a seven shot bracket, you know, because this is going to be, you know, it's like ways of thinking, you know, keep evolving. And, and so for me, it's like, can I just shoot when I, I came here to shoot? And then, yeah, edit hard and and not look back, right? Yeah. Not not feel regret, not feel like, oh, geez, I should have kept that one. And I definitely could go back if I had the time, like you said, uh, and, and easily cull out um, a third, if not. If, and that's being probably, you know, uh, that's probably under uh, estimating what I could do. But, yeah, that, you're absolutely right. So to your question, though, is there a best practice? The best practice is one catalog to rule them all just because that gives you one place to go and find everything. However, if that is too unwieldy for you uh, for a volume perspective or even if it's a hardware perspective, then you need to come up with an external system for organizing your, um, your catalogs in, in a way that makes sense to you. Right. And so year, you know, that can kind of work for a little while or maybe even go in a five year period, you know, maybe instead of one per year, just have one for every five years. Yeah, I've been thinking that I think one year might be a bit too frequent because then you especially at the beginning of a new year, because you're always going to be going back then like that transition period is is the hardest because you're still referencing photos from two months ago. But right. So, uh, yeah, that that. Yeah. And so, you know, you have to figure out a, a system that works for you. But for most people on a on a relatively, I'm not talking state of the art hardware, but something in the last few years, you should be able to run a catalog of a hundred of several hundred thousand without experiencing want to throw your computer out the window syndrome. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing I've been um, tempted and- to do is uh, also flush out old previews um, sure. from a few years back because uh, I don't know about I don't know how that actually affects speed. It may not affect like moment to moment performance of the app, but it would make your catalog like the preview file of your catalogs much smaller, which is usually yeah. the biggest file on my laptop. It's uh, it's at least a hundred gigs now. It's huge. You can delete that file totally. Yeah, it has a L- LR data uh, file extension. It says it'll be like previews dot and there's one that's called Smart Previews. You know, you probably you can. You could delete that too, because previews are, are really is something that can be regenerated. But I'll probably, I used to whenever every time a new version of Lightroom came out, I would I would trash the old preview cache and let it rebuild a new one, because that just was the quickest way to get rid of the cruft that might have built up, and have it just re-render new previews for me moving forward, and it will do that automatically, or you could manually, you know, force it to to, to create them. Yeah, the only reason um, you would be to, that people should be cautious of it is if they have some active shoots that I need to look at all these right now, and then they right. flush the yeah, cache. Don't do it. Like, oh wait, <laughs> I don't have any previews. I have to wait <laughs> half an hour for them to regenerate. Don't do that on deadline. Yeah, that's, exactly, that, yeah. that's something you do in a little bit of slack time. You know, when you when you're like, oh, what can what can I do? Yeah, um, you know, but Adobe, you know, to their credit, has a pretty decent. If you do a Google search for optimizing Lightroom. They have a pretty decent uh, document that goes through, you know, the hardware stuff you should be thinking about, and then some of the settings and some of the things you can do to try to perform, per, improve performance yeah. in Lightroom Classic. Well, I've been and following. Uh, I've been following what they've been doing on the Premiere side uh, for a, a YouTube video I've been working on, and it's been the the classic story is that 
Adobe Premiere works poorly on Macintosh. It has mm. problems. It's buggy. It's always very slow. And you're basically giving a lot up if you use Premiere on a Mac instead of on a PC. Um, Interesting. And it, all of a sudden, as in the middle of doing this video, I started seeing other people releasing. I'm totally spoiling. I got to get this video out before this podcast. To make sure it's <laughs> but uh, people were releasing benchmarks showing that all of a sudden Premiere jumped in performance by like two or three times uh, in the in the render times and basically just uh, hardware optimization. They were writing for the Metal API on Macs and just optimizing for Mac and saying, mm. "Okay, all of a sudden this is a priority for us after years of being a problem." Yeah. So, uh, you know, when Adobe de- decides to optimize for speed, it can make real differences. And they've done a few of those on Lightroom over the last few years, uh, especially true. like launch time. I think was improved a while ago and like uh, f- preview loading. Uh, but there, there's still there's still always room for improvement. Unfortunately, yes. Adobe, Lightroom is often still the slowest big Absolutely. app on anything that I use. Yeah, no, there's no there's no denying that. That's definitely that's been a you know people clamoring for better performance has been a consistent issue really since the beginning. Um, and you know, to Adobe's credit, they they seem to hear that and they have done certain things to, uh, to improve that. Like one of the things that I use all the time when I'm importing now in Lightroom Classic is they improve the embedded in sidecar option. So when you're on that import dialog, there's a file handling panel up on the top right. And you can choose in that from the dropdown there for your previews, what you want Lightroom to do as soon as this import process, you know, has, has begun. And the embedded in sidecar option now, what it does is if it, most of our DSLRs will embed a JPEG thumbnail, sometimes full resolution, you know, same pixel dimensions as the, as the original, in the RAW file. And so instead of Lightroom going through and rendering new previews immediately, which is a performance slowdown, it will just bring in those uh, embedded thumbnails or embedded previews from the raw files. And it's so much faster. If you just want to get through and see, you know, check focus, check exposure, you know, find the ones you want to just get right down to edit. It speeds up that import workflow so much yeah, uh, that I, that's difference. just my default way to bring things in now. Yeah, no, that was, and, that was a nice addition. I end up using it for sort of emergency situations because in the end you do, Usually want the real previews eventually. So yeah. any time that I'm going to spend the the time on the photos, and uh, I always have to mention my wife's the one that actually does the sorting. <laughs> I, I don't go through most of the photos we shoot; she goes through them. Yeah. Um, but that not having the previews can end up slowing you down if you are really like checking critical focus, like 100 percent focus. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Or various other, or you want to see what the colors are more likely going to look like after it goes through the Adobe raw engine. Um, yep. But what the embed thing for is great is like, okay, I know that I just need, I need a photo off of here right now. It will, right. it'll chop a few minutes off that import and you can clearly see the photos. You can definitely do yes. a basic sort yeah. on there. So. Yeah. And if, and if you've got the time, yeah, absolutely. You can set it to render the, the one the one-to-one, the full-size preview, and then just go get lunch. Yeah. <laughs> and then when you come back, everything's all ready to go. Lately, I've been uh, thinking, um, I bet right now, just w- watching what's happening in the world of Apple, uh, in terms of them readdressing professional hardware, especially with the Mac Pro announcements, what they've been doing with the iMac Pro, they clearly have refocused on the professionals, which is what we've been begging for for a long time. Yes, And yes. I 
am certain. I, I mean, I've just created a narrative in my head, but I'm sure that there are many people inside of Apple that wish Aperture had survived to today because now I bet Apple would love to have Aperture around. Yeah. Like they have maybe they'll yeah I mean I, but if they if it ever comes back it would be from scratch and they probably even have to rebrand it to make people yeah, like right. have the confidence again that they're going to support yeah, they it did. because they did lose some trust. yeah I think it just they hit this uh, dip in in support for professional apps for the Mac I think basically the iPhone got so big that it pulled it sucked all the oxygen out of Apple and like. All the good developers were forced to just focus on, look, we have this more growth than the, any company in the history of the world has ever seen because of our port- portable devices. We need to focus on them. And because of that, Aperture got it completely neglected and just started to rot. And they had to kill it because nobody was doing anything for it. Nothing was coming out. Yeah. And I think now that they've been able to circle back and they're like refocusing on the Mac, I think they would love to still have it around and have a professional photography story there, but it's just sort of too late. And you know, yeah. unless they decide no, to do right. something new. Yeah. And I think Adobe's trying to walk that line by having, you know, the splitting off of Lightroom into two products. They're trying to, to meet that future in the mobile world, but that ex- also extends to laptops and desktops. And you know, even all these words that we use, laptop, mobile, desktop, I mean, even those don't mean the same things as they used to. And I, I'll be really curious in 10 years what our actual hardware, you know, looks like and, and what we'll be using. You know, I'm looking at my my table in front of me now. There's three laptops, a phone, and an iPad on here. It's like, do we, do, do we really need all of yeah. these things? So, uh, yeah. it's, it's yeah, Can't it just time. be some glasses that I'm wearing? Right. Uh, one yeah. thing I'm, I'm really, I don't have an answer to yet, and I, I kind of think you may not yet either, but Apple announced uh, external drive support in the upcoming iPad OS, which is yeah. really exciting, really important for photographers and, and videographers. And anybody doing production with large files means you can plug in an external drive and access those images. What I haven't got a clear answer to yet, but I think I know the answer, is if apps like Lightroom or video editing apps are able to just externally reference stuff on a hard drive. So similar to Lightroom Classic, and I know this is not how it works, um, that it could say like, okay, I see that there are all these photos sitting on the drive. They don't need to live on the internal drive of this iPad at all. They can only, they can be referenced on this external drive. Um, But I I don't, I'm pretty sure Lightroom's not going to do that. But I don't even know if that's functionality being added to iPad OS, but that seems like a critically missing piece to turn sure. an iPad into a full computer. Right. Yeah. No, I don't, I don't know the answer, but I, what I do know the way, the way the Lightroom apps in, in the cloud work now is that everything you bring in goes to the cloud, mm-hmm. right? So even if you had an external drive connected to a, an iPad, say, then, and that worked right now, it would, you could import the photos from that device, but those, the, the ultimate destination for those photos is in the Adobe cloud, whether it's, whether they stay on the external drive or not, they're going to go up to the cloud and that's where it references. Well, and it becomes an even more important thing actually in video editing because you're, you're working, we'd be working with the files live, right? Every moment that you start playing back, you'd be playing them back from the drive. But if you, only can plug in that external drive to import them, then you're limited by the size of your iPad and, right. and little things like that. Right. So I don't know. 
I hoped this was the update that would bring us into the post laptop future or whatever it's going to be, but I, I think we still yeah. need another yeah, update or two. We're getting there in, in little dribs and drabs, but you know, I think about with in the whole touch interface world, um, you know, on the Windows side, you know, there's a there's a few now window uh, touch enabled laptops, tablets. I don't know what the right word is anymore. Um, Devices. Even Wacom, you know, devices has, uh, you know, a tablet PC and, uh, it's pretty cool to have both the touch interface, keyboard, whatever. Um, and you know, Apple just seems to be focusing not on introducing that touch, uh, technology into the screens. Although I finally got a MacBook pro that has the touch bar. And at first I thought I'd hate it, but I'm kind of, you know, I can't believe it. <laughs> I'm kind of neutral to it. <laughs> yeah. Now I just forget it's there. Right. Most of the time I do that, except if I need to like do a screen capture or something like that. There's been a couple of moments. It's like, oh, okay, all right, right. whatever. Yeah. It's not, not the reason I would buy it, but, um, but I see that with the iPad, you know, having that touch and then, you know, Adobe is, has said, at least at the last Adobe Max, that they're going to have a full version of Photoshop for the iPad. Um, so that whole idea of, of additional storage capacity, how do you, how do you use that? Um, having apps that require a lot more horsepower to run, uh, you're talking about video, but certainly doing multiple layered image in Photoshop on an iPad, you know, um, you know, I think, I think that time is coming. Um, and it's it's definitely right around the corner. It's about to happen for sure. Do you you also have a PC as well, or do you just, uh, I do. I have, well, I have a desktop that I don't, I have a desktop Windows machine that I, I can't remember the last time I used it. No. <laughs> um, and I have I actually have a Wacom uh, Mobile Studio Pro. Oh, cool. It's a Windows 10 machine. Well, do you know then, what what is it in computer hardware that Lightroom Classic leans on the heaviest? If you want to speed up your Lightroom performance in your next laptop, whatever it is, what do you need to spend the money on? Because... I, I think a lot of people intuitively think it's the GPU, and I bet it's not. Well, no, yeah, I, I think I think that's coming. I think they're push, uh, they're looking to push more and more to the GPU, uh, but currently it, it's not being utilized across the board. It's definitely being used, you know, mostly in develop, and I think a couple other places now, maybe rendering previews, mm-hmm. something with the slideshow. Um, but I, I think the day is coming where the GPU is going to become more and more important. Um, certainly, if you're getting a new machine, it's certainly worth considering uh, if you're using lots of Adobe products because I think both Photoshop and Lightroom are going to lean on it more heavily. But for Lightroom Classic, having having an SSD drive for sure where your catalog lives, so having your catalog on an internal SSD drive is always going to give you a better performance than having your catalog on an external drive or a spinning drive. Having more free space on that drive is really useful. Um I don't think you need to max out on RAM. You know, sixteen gigs should be plenty. Um, yeah, depending then, on what else you do. I mean, it depends if right. you have a huge stack of Photoshop layers open at the same yeah. time uh, versus primarily working in Lightroom. Like, if you're building a Lightroom only workstation, it, it'd sort of be different. So I think it'd be really like spend all your money on a CPU and a fast yes. SSD. And that's yes. ev- that's everything that it's going to be hammering on constantly. That's then, yeah, that'll give you the most bang for the buck for sure. Yeah. Um, and, and then, um, you know, I think getting a decent GPU card uh, is is going to future proof you a bit. 
um, you probably won't see the benefit in the short term, you know, from it. Yeah, um, but it's also just good for a well-rounded computer because we're not actually yeah. Building, well, especially like, if you're machines. doing video too or doing you know, yeah. It, it's hard to have a machine if you're in the Lightroom world. You probably are doing Photoshop. You're probably doing some video editing, even if it's the most basic, you know, kind of because uh, video is so ubiquitous these days. So, yeah, those are the those are the key things, I think. Um, and then really just kind of keeping your system running smoothly. You know, it's one of the it's, it's not a sexy task, but, um, you know, keeping up to, up to date, but also being aware that sometimes updates aren't your, aren't your best friend. But, you, you, you know, um, you got to there are some updates most of the time, you know, that do improve things. Um, but you do need to be careful. It's hard to be on the bleeding edge sometimes of those updates. Speaking uh, of updates, what's been new in Lightroom lately? I've seen a texture slider appear, and I've tried using it a few times. Yeah, the texture slider is the newest slider that's been added in a couple of years. I think Clarity might have been the you know the last one that's been added, or, or Dehaze might have been. Uh, oh, Dehaze, that's right, Dehaze, and then Clarity. Yeah, so. And all of them, you know, they kind of work together in the same family of uh, of, a, of a targeted contrast adjustment, and and they do things in a different way. And it's kind of fun if you you know when you have a chance, if you haven't already, um, you know, take a raw image and then zero out clarity, dehaze, um, and texture, and just move them left to right and watch the histogram, and you'll see different parts of that histogram. You'll see how that contrast adjustment, which is, uh, you know basically what they're doing in a targeted way. Whenever you're adjusting any type of contrast, right, you're making the brighter parts brighter, darker parts darker to increase contrast, or doing it in reverse to decrease contrast. And and by doing the increasing and decre- decreasing of contrast in different targeted ways, you're able to enhance detail or, you know, kind of subdue that detail, like in texture with skin, you know, to try to smooth out certain parts of, of the detail in the skin, but still retain the structure, the, the pores and things that make people look human. Um, it, it's a pretty clever and, and I think really useful and very welcome adjustment. I think it's helpful to also look at the Unsharp mask in Photoshop and play around with yeah. it to get a sense of what is happening. Just understanding that relationship of what is the difference between texture, clarity, and dehaze, yeah. uh, you can find a lot of that by using the traditional sharpening and contrast tools in Photoshop. And and then all of a sudden you'll get the relationship a little more. And I still need to do this a bit more to really wrap my head around what texture is doing. But you know, I can say clarity, what it looks like to me is that it's usually a high radius sharpening. And the radius is like, here's the width around each line that we will apply the sharpening where we will you know, sharpening mm-hmm. is just taking each line, like a contrasty line in an image, and making the uh, difference between the dark and the bright of it more accentuated. Right. Um, and if you turn up the radius, it means that there is a wider area that is becoming more more contrasty. Mm-hmm. And that's what clarity looks like to me. Uh, Dehaze yeah. seems to have it seems to have clarity as like par- built into it a bit, and also definitely ties in more of like. Um, an actual contrast slider and a saturation slider. Right, so, definitely affects saturation too. Yeah, so there's less clarity being th- than the clarity slider, but it's being added a little bit. More contrast is being turned up, and the saturation is being turned up. Then texture, I don't quite know yet. It's it seems like it looks a little somewhere between sh- uh, like a sharpen like a traditional sharpening, which would be a low radius, 
and less than clarity. And I don't know. I don't know. It's kind of, you know what? Um, I'll send you a link there. One of the uh, developers behind the texture slider has a, had a nice post about it. I'll send that link to you. You can put it in the notes. Yeah, I absolutely will. Uh, anything else, Rob? What else is, what's new for you? What's next for you? Yeah, you're done a huge project. So yeah, oh, so glad. there's nothing better than turning in that last chapter on a book. Oh, How long God. is this book? I've never written a book, but you, you do this kind of thing and it seems in, very intimidating to me. Well, this one took a long time for lots of different reasons. Um, and I'm kind of glad that it took as long as it did because I managed to just get the chain when, the, when Adobe dropped the CC <laughs> I was in the middle of writing this book and the original yeah. title for the book included the CC. I'm like, we can't, we can't do that. <laughs> we have to get yeah, rid yeah. of it. Dodge that bullet. So yeah. So I was glad it for it all worked out and I'm glad it's in my hand right now. Um, you know so what? Next actually, I've got, what, I'll just say what will be good for these books though. What will be good for your sales is the, uh, no longer having the hard number updates. So when your book is right. sitting on the shelf, it's going to say Lightroom classic Right. For five years, well, it's all called Lightroom Classic. And actually, how right. do you identify? Do you just say 2019 edition? Or like, how do you let people know <laughs> which relevant version they're working with? Um, yeah, that, Adobe has made that a lot harder. They don't show the version number on the splash screen anymore. Um, yeah. It just has a different yeah. image. <laughs> it just has a different image. And, you know, like with Photoshop, they'll say the 2019 edition, whatever. But that's really hard to necessarily remember. Um usually because it comes out the year before it gets that name, right? Mm-hmm. So like Photoshop, the 2019 edition came out last right. October. <laughs> so I, it's like, a, yeah, it's that, because they're updating. I mean, since Lightroom Classic became Lightroom Classic, Adobe has released updates that included new features as well as bug fixes, lens support and camera support and all that every two months. Yeah. Wow. So for a print book to come out, you know, I managed to get in the texture slider which came out in May. Um, but, you know, at this point on, every two months, something new comes out. I'm not going to be able to include it. And I'm a little nervous about whatever, because <laughs> October is usually, or November this year, when Adobe Max comes along and they like to announce new things. So I kind of, I'm a little nervous. <laughs> so who knows what, what's going to come out of there. Um, but I'm, I'm excited and we'll see. Well, whatever comes next. and I'm just saying that to your benefit, people won't know that yours is missing some of that stuff. So they'll, still, <laughs> right. they'll be buying your book for years to come, right. which uh, I think yeah. they should. Uh, well, so, and I, I made, I made a strong point in the book to reference my blog, light rumors, <laughs> but also Lightroom killer tips, because that's where I'm updating most. So, you know, if it's not in the book, it's going to be, it's going to be there. All right. Well, and there'll be links to all of it in the show notes. Uh, thanks so much for coming on, Rob. Thanks for having me, Tyler. 